to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. This is the, the musical notes. If you ever did music in school, maybe you played clarinet or something for a few years, or even if you had a music class or ever sang in choir, you know that there will be notes that are not part of the music, but they're there to help it out. They'll, it'll say the time signature. It'll say who wrote it. It'll give you a little note. So these little Italian words that tell you about how fast it ought to go. There'll be little markings to tell you how loud it should be. Well, it's the same kind of thing here. It says it was written to the choir master. The Hebrew word there actually just means chief or overseer. So we imply from that choir master, meaning the person who was in charge of the music, the chief musician, and because it was verbal, there would have been singing, and we know that there was singing in the Bible, so choir master it is, although it is slightly broader than that, with stringed instruments. There are all manner of stringed instruments throughout the world, and the Bible mentions the harp, and it mentions the lyre, and a few others, although it probably would not have been in the forms we know them today. So all that to say, guitars on stage is absolutely biblical, because they're stringed instruments. <laughs> Oh, is that too much, right? Come on, they're stringed instruments, and this is how we're told to play them. And we certainly didn't have violins and cellos back then, as much as I would love to have a violin and some cellos up here and all that. But it says neginot. We don't know exactly what neginot were. We just know that they had strings on them. So as long as you've got strings on your instrument, you're doing just fine, my friend. A Psalm of David. David did not write all the Psalms. He did write most of them. And so here we have one of his psalms, and verse 1 tells us, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. At the beginning and at the end of Psalm 4, David addresses the Lord. And in the middle, David speaks to men. He's going to speak to the sons of Adam. He's actually going to say to the sons of men here about about their response to his prayer. Now, he says he's in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. We don't know exactly what kind of trouble David was in. When we did Psalm 3, we saw that it was specifically related to the time when Absalom, his own son, staged a coup against him and David had to flee to the wilderness. This one is more ambiguous, which is great because it means it can apply to all sorts of situations where you are in distress. And David here is asking for God to answer his call, and he seems to be in need of vindication. What do I mean when I say that? I mean, he needs God to step in and demonstrate that David is in the right here. Why do I say that? Because he says, God of my righteousness. Now, that's a wonderful term as a New Testament believer, because God is your righteousness. Jesus Christ has imputed his righteousness to you. However, in this specific context, Righteousness can be translated justice or rightness. David is saying, God, I'm in the right. I'm doing the right thing. I know it. You know it. And everybody else, though, is treating me like I've done something wrong. So you've got to come in and be my righteousness and vindicate me and demonstrate, at least in the heavenlies, that I'm in the right and I am seeking your face. David very often faced False accusation, he faced enemies, we talked about Absalom, all the trials under Saul, where David never did anything against Saul, but Saul was jealous of David and chased him into the wilderness and spread all manner of evil rumor about him. And you can picture David, perhaps in this very context, saying, Lord, you be my righteousness. You be the judge and the jury over who's right in this situation. It is comforting to know that God sees all things, isn't it? You ever been falsely accused? You ever been 
maybe by a girlfriend or boyfriend or by a boss at work or even by a neighbor, like in a friend group that seems like everybody has conspired against you. It's very hard to answer false accusations because what are you supposed to say except that's not true? You know, sometimes people put accusations to you that you don't quite know how to answer because it's so far out of left field that whatever you say will sound irrelevant. But it's not that your answer is irrelevant. It's the accusation is totally irrelevant to whatever happened. So this is why he calls on the Lord. And it's comforting for us to know God sees all this. God sees all this. It also, by the way, it can be frightening to know that God sees all this. Because if you know that you're in the wrong, the Lord knows it too. And God is going to be is going to balance all that out in the end. And so th that is one way to approach this psalm, and I think it's appropriate. But as you read through this, I read this psalm as being more concerned, not that David had done something and everybody was accusing him of being evil. I see this psalm as describing the accusations of people who totally deny God and deny the prayer of faith as even legitimate. That this psalm is about psalms themselves. That David calls upon the Lord and everybody around him thinks he's an idiot for calling out to the Lord. That David is, is in the wrong and believing lies and, and putting people in danger and in jeopardy for calling on God and not handling things himself. And this is something that all of us face. We all face those who consider us fools or even worse for trusting in God. Haven't you ever encountered that? You know, we uh, are starting to do more online ministry. And as the, the YouTube channel grows, there are some people that are finding us and have no, no qualms about letting us know exactly what they think about our trust in the Lord. And uh, this was funny. One fella made it very abundantly clear that we are the blind, subservient slaves to our puppet master God, who also does not exist. So I'm not sure how both of those things are true. But... <laughs> You know, you read that and it's, it's kind of funny, but also it's like, it, it doesn't feel good either. You know, you can trust in the Lord, but I mean, I don't, I don't think even Jesus himself was able to brush off accusations and false attacks from people that were, that were supposed to love him or even didn't even know him. We all face this. And the Bible tells us that we have to stand firm against this, that your response to distress and difficulty is to call upon God and to stand in faith while all around you there are going to be people trying to knock you off that pedestal of faith. James 1 verses 6 through 8, he tells us that we must ask in faith with no doubting. There are those that will make you feel really bad for not having enough faith when you pray. And those people are, are not very pleasant to be around. However, we should not ignore the fact in response to them that there is such a thing as having doubting when you, pray, when you pray and that it can hinder your prayers. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God has invited us to call upon him. He has promised to answer us. So we've got to stand firm, even in the midst of accusations from people that are trying to make us feel stupid for calling upon the Lord. We need not fear anybody. As David says there, he says, you already gave me relief last time. So I know you're going to answer this time. And everybody in here has a testimony of the time that God answered them. Don't you? Time when God answered you, whatever the circumstance might have been, that God stepped in and said, I got this one. I know I certainly have a, a, an abundance of such testimonies. But even though you have all of that faith, 
The assaults on faith can be strong and make you even begin to doubt, even though God has been with you a hundred times, the hundred and first time we can be just as worried. How many times has the Lord healed somebody in this church? Say, a lot. <laughs> a lot of people have been healed in this church, and yet, whenever we come together to pray for somebody to be healed, there's still that trepidation, like, oh boy, I hope God doesn't get embarrassed here this morning. When you'd think after a while, we'd say, ah, the Lord's got this one. After how many times the Lord has provided for you, even at the last minute, or stretched out the deadline so that you didn't need the money right when you needed it anyway, we still come up against that, that deadline, and we, oh, Lord, what's going to happen? We ought to have faith. And David is going to address two things here today. It's, it's going to be a, a shorter message because there's some things we need to talk about. But he's going to address, number one, intellectual challenges to this prayer of faith and also emotional challenges. We're going to look at both of these this morning that David is determined to call upon the Lord. But we're going to see in the middle there are people that are going to look at him and say, you're out of your mind. You're being irresponsible or insensitive for doing that. Verse two and three, David says, oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. I love that. So David had a problem with some men who had a problem with the way he called upon the Lord. Now he speaks to these, the, the sons of men, literally in verse 2. It says, oh men, but this is the sons of men. And, and some people have tried to interpret that. Does that mean that this is like a higher category of people that, that are, you know, exalted men? Well, it doesn't say that. It just says sons of men or sons of a man. Uh, it's emphasizing their mortality here. He says, you're going to come to me and tell me whether or not I can call upon the Lord. And you're, you're in the same boat as I am. I know the living God. Why am I going to listen to you? And he's asking them, though, how long will my honor be turned into shame? Meaning, you ought to be honoring me. It's not selfish. He's just saying, I've only ever done right by you and tried my best to do right by you. And rather than honoring me, you're shaming me. How long are you going to act like this? How long are you going to love vain words and seek lies? And this is the kind of slander that those who take a stand for God to any degree, they're going to face that accusation and that slander. Matthew 5.11, Jesus even told us, Blessed are those when they revile you and speak all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice, he said, for that's how they treated the prophets. They liked the false prophets. They hated the true prophets. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' word about blessed are the persecuted is immediately followed up by a reference not to being crucified or tortured, but to insults? Take comfort in that, because we've all experienced that before. Specifically, I think what we see here, David is dealing with men who thought that his reliance upon God was inappropriate for somebody in his position. Specifically, perhaps for a king or a soldier, depending on at what time this was written in his life. Let me give you an example. Turn left for a bit to 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm sure you know this story. It's actually kind of a humorous story. But I want us to consider not, not David and Saul here, but how David's men might have reacted to this. This is when Saul is chasing David. David's in the wilderness and Saul is on a mission to hunt down David because he's afraid David is going to take his throne, something David would never do, as will be demonstrated in chapter 24, verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. It's kind of funny right there. It's okay to laugh at that. That Saul's looking for David anywhere he goes. I'm going I'm to stop off. I've got I to cover my feet, is the Hebrew there. And so he goes in, and all David's men are sitting in the back. And like, 
He's right there. What is he doing? Oh, what is he doing? Now David and men, verse 4, said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David, today's the day. Go take Saul's life. So David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David's probably trying to mess with Saul here. Like, I'm going I'm to play with him. He's going to be afraid and wondering who's in this cave, and then, then I'll have my revenge. But he's, he realized, what am I doing? So verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. How do you think David's men felt about that? David's mighty men. There's a couple hundred men that would travel with David. And they're like, we're, we're exiles, outlaws, Robin Hood and his merry men, because of this guy right here. God has already told David, you'll be the one to take the throne. And here's your chance. And, and remember, these were not choir boys that David was running with. These were the rough and rowdy ones, the ones that were in debt and had to run away from their debtors. These were the guys that were willing to be raiders in the, in the land of Israel. It says something about David's leadership, isn't it? That he could keep command of these guys. But they're sitting there. We're, this could have been the day when all this was over. David is afraid to get his hands dirty. Oh, he trusts the Lord. Look, I trust the Lord too. But sometimes you've got to just take what God gives you, you know. This actually would happen a second time where they would see Saul sleeping in the middle of the camp. And David's right-hand man would say, look, David, I know you don't want to kill Saul. Let me do it. I'll take this spear. I'm going to put it right in him. I'm not even going to need to hit him twice. Then the guilt will be upon me. This will be over, and you'll be king. And David didn't let them do that again. Don't you think this might have made the soldiers question David a little bit? Maybe in the next day where they didn't have enough food and they were down to half rations and they were sleeping in the cold and they didn't have anywhere to stay. We should have taken Saul in that cave. We could have got, I could have put that spear. I can still like, I dream, still dream about it. And then we would all be home and it'd all be over. Man, David, he says he trusts the Lord, man, but sometimes you just got to be a man about these things. You got a weak stomach, David. Don't say that you're so spiritual. And it's kind of hard to answer those, those challenges, I would have imagined. And we too face intellectual challenges from those who believe that spiritual solutions are unacceptable. If you're just going to look at that situation intellectually, well, yeah, David should strike Saul down. He comes in and says, no, there's another dimension to this. There's a spiritual dimension. And we know lots of folks, I'm sure he did too, that the minute you start talking about spiritual things, they go, okay, you really believe that. Perhaps David himself was accused of believing in vain words and seeking after lies. I know you say that, David. It doesn't mean anything. They're lies. It's not real. God is not real. But even though we face these accusations, we have to remember what we know to be true. First of all, we know that God is real. We know that God is real. Amen? I mean, you're in here. You're a Christian. You're coming to church. I mean, I would hope you think that God is real. Because if you know, you're looking for a feel-good you know, place to hang out, you know, this, we don't even serve food here. I don't know what you're doing, okay? <laughs> Like, we believe that God is real. We know he is. Atheists are the minority of the minority in the whole world. Did you know that? Most people believe in God. Why? Well, I could go through all the reasons. You could talk about the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, it all blew up. What blew up? Uh, the singularity. Where did that come from? Well, now you're just being silly. No, that's the actual question. Where did it come from? 
So you're saying God was there forever? Yes, that's a definition of God. You can talk about the moral argument. How many atheists get amazingly outraged at what happens in this country or this place? You ask, why? Well, I believe in, I believe in morality. Why? Well, because I believe that we ought to seek the flourishing of the human race. Why? Because that's good. Says who? Oh, so you think you need God to be righteous? Yes, I do. To know what's right with any degree of certainty, you need God. Otherwise, why not just evolve beyond our morality and do what the Nazis did? That's what they believed they were doing. So we had finally evolved beyond the need for such righteousness. We're going to act upon the world in the way we see it's right. It's not that every atheist you understand is a wicked person. It's that most of them are good people, but they have no philosophical foundation to stand upon for that. They're living off of the fumes of whatever Christianity is still drifting through our culture. I could talk about the ontological argument for the existence of God, which is a little trickier, but let's just say it's, it's our ability to conceive of the existence of God in the first place points to the reality of God. There's a guy named Alvin Plantinga that tied that to multiverse theory, which I thought was really interesting. He says, if there is any universe that exists where God is real, then God of necessity must exist in all possible universe. I don't even have much credence to that theory, by the way, but it's just kind of fun. He's like, all right, well, let's take your premises and see if this still works. And it does. But how about the fact that we've experienced God in our lives? We've experienced, you can't use your experience. Oh, really? I call that empirical evidence that I've lived through my life, called upon his name and the Lord has answered me. He has answered me. The reality of God. But not only that, the promises that God has made. There are lots of folks that believe in God. Why do you think God listens to you? Because he told us he did. He has a whole book in here, 150 chapters, telling us, hey, this is how I want you to talk to me. The Lord said, seek and you will find. The Lord revealed himself through his son. Hebrews 11.6 says, whoever would, would call upon God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We know these things as Christians. And we cannot be tricked into operating as if those things aren't real. Well, I just believe in that in a society, you know, you have to act as if no religion is true. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen with me, I'll tell you that much. I live here too. You're not going to convince me that I have to act like the most important thing in the world is not real in the way I conduct myself publicly. You can say something like, well, just you, you can't vote your religion. We're voting and I'm religious. And there's a lot of us. So if that's the way it is, well, you wanted a democratic system, and it's what we have now. And above all, those who are in Christ Jesus have been welcomed into a prayer relationship by the blood of Christ, haven't we? Jesus said, in those days you will call upon the Lord in my name. That means with my authority. You have Christ's authority when you pray. And if you don't like that statement, what do you think praying in his name means? When you do something in your boss's name, people better listen up. Somebody shows to your house with a badge on in the name of the state, you best pay attention to that. Well, it wasn't the president, so, you know, I only follow the president. Well, that's the president's representative. Well, I don't believe that. Well, you're going to go to jail if you're going to live that way. So let's talk about this. Praying in Jesus' name? That's coming into heaven's throne room with the authority and name and person of Christ. We have to insist upon these truths. They've been tested. We know these things. And can I say this too? Our circumstances are no different from last time or any other time. Every, every generation believes this, it seems. Or maybe it's just mine and we keep doing this. We're like, listen, it's 2024. Like that matters, you know. It's 2024 and we just can't believe in prayer anymore. What is so special about 2024? 
as opposed to, I don't know, 1924, 1424, or just 24? Oh, this is different. We've never seen anything like this. First of all, yeah, we have. Second of all, is the Lord not greater than those things? I'm talking now about believers, people who do believe in God and do believe in prayer, who get so overwhelmed by what we're facing in the culture, they think, oh, we can't, we can't pray anymore. That's a lie from hell, my friends, to keep you off of the thing that actually gives you power to face those things. Not only to face them, but to affect them in the heavenlies. Don't let doubt drown out the testimony. The Lord hears when I call to him. He has set apart the godly for himself at Calvary through Christ Jesus. Great tests of faith will come from persuasive naysayers, intellectual challenges to the faith. You need to know the truth and stand on it. Just because you are unable to convince a belligerent person online of whether or not God exists doesn't mean you can't step back and say, well, poor fool, I know the truth. We can pity people like that, but just because you can't answer their foolish questions doesn't mean that you can't stand on what you know and have seen to be true, my friends, like David did. How can you just trust the Lord, David? Because God's only ever been good to me. You should take Saul's life, David. The Lord said we shouldn't do that. God anointed that person. And if I'm going to operate as God's anointed, I don't want people coming after me. So I'm going to do unto him as I would have people do to me. Living out the golden rule before Jesus ever, ever even said it out loud. Face those intellectual challenges. Stand on what you know to be true. Verses 4 and 5. Be angry. And that's my topic for today. No, I'm just <laughs> Be angry. And do not sin. Got to finish reading, right? Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So first thing David asked his opponents to do was to know, know that the Lord has set the godly apart. Accept the intellectual truth of who God is and what God says. Well, now he's going to give some emotional advice. He tells them to be angry. And there's more to it. I just love pausing right there because it sounds so funny. Makes everybody squirm. He tells them the Hebrew word is ragaz. And it literally means to quiver. To quiver or shake. You ever get so angry you start shaking? Anybody else, that's how you know you're angry? Maybe you're, you know, you're not as in tune with what's you know, going on up there. And then you're just kind of like, what is this? I think I'm angry. <laughs> I think I'm really angry right now. Be agitated. It, it can sometimes be understood to tremble or to quiver in fear. But in Ephesians 4.26, Paul quotes from this passage and says, Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger. And in my opinion, the New Testament interpretation kind of confirms what the Old Testament ought to be. So be angry. He's facing emotional challenges now. We face these when, in terms of prayer and calling upon the Lord when we are accused of being insensitive or unmanly in the midst of trouble. How can you say you're going to pray for somebody when this terrible, horrible tragedy has happened? Don't you care about what they're doing? You're just some soft man that's going to sit back and pray instead of standing up and taking back what belongs to you. Those are emotional challenges to trust in the Lord. Let me say this up front. What did the Lord say? Be angry. It's still in there. Be angry. God never tells us to ignore serious situations and pretend that everything is fine. I know there are some churches that do that. I don't think there are as many that do that as people want to claim sometimes. I, I encounter lots of great churches that are, know how to weep with each other, know how to rejoice with each other, know how to be properly enraged with one another, to be 
all the full range of emotions with one another. There are some though that you just kind of you're supposed to just kind of you know be plastic all the time. And I praise the Lord, you know, hello, God, God is good, and you know my my children are going crazy, and my wife's on drugs, and my job was lost yesterday. But hallelujah, I'm just glad to be here. That bears no resemblance to New Testament Christianity, or I'd even say most legitimate Christianity that exists today. And it certainly doesn't exist here. If it starts to exist here, knock it off, would you? <laughs> Bible tells you to be angry. That means sometimes there is a time to be angry. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to go to the cross, was distressed in his spirit, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. That means one of two things. Either he was sweating so much, it looked like he was bleeding, or, number two, there was some actual physical reaction going on where the stress produced blood actually coming out of his sweat glands. It can, we can read either way. Point is, he was emotional. Well, God's not emotional. Oh, really? Well, why does the Bible say the Lord is grieved, the Lord is angry, the Lord rejoiced, the Lord was sorry? Well, that's so anthropomorphic language. It's the other way around. God's not, we are not, sorry, God is not like us when we describe him as being emotional. We are like God in our emotions. The difference is, God does not sin in his emotion. The Lord feels very deeply and then does what is righteous. We have the temptation to feel very deeply and let those feelings carry us away. But we're not to do that. We're to be angry and not sin. Emotion is real. It's not sinful to be emotional. Just read the Psalms. David will say later, I flood my bed with tears. That doesn't sound like an awful lot of faith. Uh, really? That's what the Lord told us we ought to feel sometimes. There are circumstances in life that justify flooding your bed with tears, being angry. But rather than just raging in that emotion, he tells us, ponder in your own hearts in your beds and be silent. He says, rather than blaspheming God and say, God can't help us and he's not going to do anything for us, we ought to come to the Lord in that emotion, but bringing it to him in the right way, worshiping with right sacrifices. Come to God properly, even in your depth of distress, whatever it might look like. Second Chronicles 20, verse 12, King Jehoshaphat was facing down an army that was too big for them. So you know, they, did, they didn't even bother fielding an army because it was like, what, what's the point? We're going to get overrun. Instead, they went to the temple and they began to pray. And the great king said, we are powerless, O Lord, against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. They were afraid. They were scared. So what did they do? They got into God's house. They called on his name and they said, Lord, what do we do next? There is a time to react to things. There's a time to sit back and plan things. There's a time to pace in your anxiety. There's a time to sweat in your fear. There's a time to shout because you're angry. But all of that must come to a place of obedience to God through faithful prayer. It can all be sanctified if it is brought under subjection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Prayer is that mechanism. What does prayer do? It enables you to feel deeply, even down to the very depths of your soul, and then bring those things, hand them over to the Lord for safekeeping, and then let them go. This is why very often when you see someone come to a prayer meeting and they haven't been in a long time, and they've been sitting on something that they've not brought to the Lord, that it doesn't take but five minutes for them to start breaking down and crying. No shame in that. Zero shame in that. That's what it's for. Is to, I mean, you, you're going to go out there and you're going to have to execute. I mean, men know about this. Like, you got to show up and do your job. It doesn't matter how you're feeling that day. 
But when you come into the Lord's house, there is a place that is set aside for you to feel it deeply, but to do it in a context where you're giving it to God. God will handle that for you, and then you get to go out and do your work in trust that God is going to handle the things that are distressing you. So folks that say, prayer doesn't help anything. First of all, yes, it does. God answers prayer. We know that. But the emotional, well, you're not really doing, you're not helping anything. Don't you feel deeply? Of course I do. That's why I pray. Don't you see what's going on? Aren't you angry about it? Yes, I am. You don't seem angry. Well, because I gave it to the Lord and he's got it under control. You don't seem heartbroken over what's going on. Of course I am. Well, then why do you seem so serene in this moment? Because I handed it over to God. He said to cast all my cares upon him because he cares for me. And he's taken those things. And he says, by the way, offer right sacrifices. Jesus already offered the right sacrifice one time. You don't need to offer another sacrifice to the Lord. Jesus did that. So trust Jesus, not just God nebulously, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again himself. We're often told as Christians that we're like emotionally stunted. Like they just don't understand what's real. A lot of people that are deconstructing, they want to come out and say, just, I go to church and they just don't understand the horrible things going on in the world. And first of all, Christians do more about horrible things going on in the world than anybody else. But it's not that we don't get it. It's that we know what to do with it. We take these things and take this information in. We process it through the pain and the grief and the joy or whatever it might be, the rage. We bring it to God in prayer. We express and feel those things deeply. We hand them over to God. Then we get up to do what we've got to do, trusting that God's going to handle the rest. And because we believe this and know this to be true, that gives us a peace and a hope that other people can only look at and say, I don't get it. That's what Philippians calls peace that passes all understanding. I don't understand. And sometimes people will accuse you in that moment because they don't understand. It's not a lack of feeling. It's real, actual, genuine hope. And I would say even, all, even in the midst of all that, I don't know if this is the time where we need to, you know, whenever people are like, well, we just got to feel more and rage more and cry more. And a lot of times that's, that's not useful. It's not helpful. The Lord has told us to be angry and do not sin. Take these things to God and then get up and go about your business like you're supposed to. Verse 6 through 8. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now David turns back to the Lord. Remember, he's been talking to the Lord at the beginning and then to men in the middle. And now he's talking to the Lord again. He's speaking everywhere I go. There's somebody saying, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? Who's right? Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to provide what we need? I mean, that's just the constant chatter of, of society, isn't it? Where, what's the right way, the best way to do something? Who's going to help us? Who's going to step in? Who's going to be president? Who's going to be CEO? Who's going to handle the family when dad dies? We're always looking for that. And by the way, a little grammar note here. ESV continues the quotation to the end of verse 6, where it says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Uh, obviously, there's no punctuation in the Hebrew, so that's an interpreter's way of looking at it. Many people say, Who will show us some good? They're either in verse 6, calling upon the Lord to lift up his face upon them, or that's David himself saying, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Either one is appropriate. It's a reference back to Numbers 6.25 where is the blessing from the priest. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Everywhere people are arguing over how best to handle life's catastrophes when things just break in and everything falls to pieces. You know, things like COVID was a catastrophe. 
You know, 9-11 is a catastrophe. A spouse dying, a catastrophe. Car accidents, sickness diagnoses. But also, how do we handle life's insecurities? The things that are coming out of us internally. When you're unsettled in your marriage and you feel like, I don't know if I, if I like this anymore. It was good for the first few years, but now what are we supposed to do? Or maybe as you, you get older and you start to realize maybe I'm not as sharp as I once was and is somebody else going to come up behind me and those things that are not as catastrophic and it's kind of hard to even tell somebody about it because it seems so small, but it's real to you. Or how are you supposed to handle life's hurts when somebody comes in and does something to you and is never going to make the evening news, but man, when my neighbor said that, it hurt me. How do we handle things like that? Well, the word tells us it's only the Lord who can help us. The Lord, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And David says, I love verse 7. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Replace grain and wine with stock options and fancy cars and real estate and clout. Lord, David says, I've got more joy in my heart than they do because I know the Lord. They know the Lord. It's God alone who gives us security. Many people believe, well, if I can just get a little more money, I can get a little more power, a few more toys, then I will, I'll feel good about everything in life. And I'll be happy, and I won't deal with that. It doesn't work, does it? Here's the, the great news of being a believer is the Lord can bless you with those things, and you can be secure in Christ. But if you're not secure in Christ, even if you have those things, it's not going to help you. But even if you don't have those things and you are secure in Christ, it's just stuff moving in and out of your life. And the Lord is always there. This is something that believers learn. Most of us, there comes a day when you realize, wow, God is going to take care of everything. Haven't you had those days? Maybe you can look back and pinpoint the day. God's got this. And over time, you learn to understand those things. And if you're in the church, and there's no shame on this, you need to know this intellectually, but there, there will come a day where you will learn this, that there is no other way to go than Christ. Especially if you've been raised in the church, you've been raised as a Christian, there comes a time where maybe you face some great calamity or you see somebody that you love go through something or whatever it might be and you realize the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And your whole life you're going to learn to understand that. And then you read verses like Romans 8, 28 that says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You can say, I don't just believe that because it's in the Bible. I believe it because I've seen it. <laughs> I've lived it out. That's my story. That even the worst things that I did, even when I messed it up, God is able to spin it back around and it all works out for good. So David's sitting here saying, so why would I believe these people that are falsely accusing me and attacking my faith in the Lord when God has been with me every single day of my life? David faced difficulties. They intellectually challenge his faith. They emotionally challenge his love for the Lord. But he says, all this is in God's hands, so I will continue to demonstrate my faith through prayer and calling upon his name. You've heard somebody tell you, maybe even this week, I did, that you're stupid or insensitive for trusting in God's help. But the Lord is the one who sustains us. He is real. His word is true. And the longer I live, and it hadn't even been that long so far, it only gets more and more true every single day. To the point where you just kind of stop worrying about the money. God's got this. God's got this. You, you learn those lessons when you're broke, and then maybe you get a little more settled, and you get a little more, you know, farther ahead, and you might even come across somebody that's got more money than you, and yet they have less faith in you, and so they're more unsettled than you. Oh, I learned a long time ago that if we need something, God's going to take care of it. 
when you've seen God take you through various health challenges, heal you or heal other people, and you know that all of that is in the Lord's hands, in Psalm 103, he's the one that heals all your diseases, you face one of those things like, like a man or a woman of God. How are you not freaking out right now? I'm not going to say I'm not upset, but I know Jesus, and he's good. And he bore my, my wounds, my stripes on the cross. We answer intellectual challenges by knowing the truth. That's that intellectual assent that God is real and he wants us to seek his face. And we answer emotional challenges by feeling deeply, but then turning them over to God in faith. It's where we can get out and start taking the act, which is to call upon the Lord in faith. And then to act as if God is already answering. That's the trouble sometimes. I prayed, okay, but are you walking like God is listening? Or are you praying and then continuing to panic? That man should just pray and do nothing? Well, no, of course not. You pray and then you get about your business, as we said. But there's a way you can go about that in faith and there's a way you can go about it in fear. No situation is too great. God will vindicate you. He is your righteousness. And you'll be able to say with David that the Lord hears when I call to him.